Hey, hey, everyone. Happy Halloween. After speaking with cultural and conservation ornithologist Jay Drew Lanham last week about how certain birds are abused and targeted because of the way they look, and also cats, it occurred to me that Halloween was the perfect opportunity to talk more about this and give some animals a rebrand. And since Friday the 29th was World Lemur Day, I have two, yes, two special guests this week to help us better appreciate one remarkable lemur. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. All right, there we had some spooky Halloween music um, to lead us into the show. And before I welcome my first guest, I want to talk about a few more birds that have an undeserved bad reputation and see if we can't give them a makeover. It seems humans have a tendency to associate evil and death with ravens, crows, blackbirds in general, vultures, and owls. Let's consider the raven first. Some revere it, and some are certain it's a symbol of death and a bringer of bad news, especially when they show up at a funeral. Where does this come from? We know from Old Nordic and English poetry, the raven is one of the beasts of battle, together with the wolf and the eagle, all three of whom are joyous and eager for the death of fallen soldiers. This may be because all three will eat carrion or other dead animals. An incredibly important task in nature, by the way. We can throw crows into the mix because they're often viewed the same way as ravens. And in Japan, there's actually one word for them collectively, karasu. In Japanese culture, ravens and crows are interchangeable and become one as the crow god. It's revered and seen as divine heavenly intervention that will bring guidance from above. On the one hand, a bad omen, and on the other hand, divine intervention? The truth is the crow nor the raven are either of these. They are magical and have many exceptional properties. They're both corvids, they're both brilliant, with crows counting and grasping the concept of zero, something human kids take a while to understand. It's likely anything that crows can do, ravens can also do. They both hold grudges, have seriously complicated social lives, and can solve puzzles faster than most college students. Vultures are another group that are collectively seen as evil, bad omens, and signs of death. Again, maybe this is because they're the cleaners of the terrestrial world, and we desperately need them. I've watched in fascination as a group of black vultures, 30 to 40 of them, Pick clean a possum in about 30 minutes. I'll be posting a YouTube video of that on my YouTube channel, Wild Connection TV, in the near future. 
They huff and puff at each other, and there is clearly a top vulture in the family. Unlike our beloved swans, who would make excellent guests on an episode of He's Not the Father, they are more monogamous, in fact, totally monogamous, yet we love to despise the black vulture and the black turkey vulture. Oddly, we're fascinated with the California condor, which, incidentally, is also a vulture. These vultures made the news this week for virgin birth, or parthenogenesis. That's where a female can clone herself. No male required. It's happened before in birds, something I will say for a special Thanksgiving episode. The rebrand here is anything guys can do, we can do better, including making babies on our own. But let's get to the star of the show. It was World Lemur Day on Friday the 29th, and today is Halloween. You might be wondering why these two things go together. It's because there is one special lemur that needs a makeover, the I.I. My first guest is Dr. Tim Sefcik, and he is a conservation geneticist, currently a postdoc at the Omaha Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. He's going to get us started in learning about lemurs and what makes the I.I. so darn special. Everybody, I am excited to welcome Dr. Tim Sefcik to the show. He is here to talk to us about one of the animals that I think really deserves a rebrand. And um, and I'm, I'm just excited to have you here. Thank you. So, I'm to talk with you about the eye-eyes. So. Yeah, so that's right. We're going to talk about eye-eyes. And before we do that, um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and where you are? Yeah, so I'm at uh, Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. I'm a postdoc in the conservation genetics lab, um, which is uh, run by Dr. Ed Lewis, who you will talk to or are going to. Do. Yep, he's he's our second <laughs> guest. That's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we we do a lot of conservation work in Madagascar, and one of the species that we focus on is the eye um, and trying to get a better understanding of their behavior and the different habitats that they occupy. It's wonderful. And, and how did you, you know, I think it's always interesting for people to understand how we as scientists kind of end up being scientists. So, so can you walk us through a little bit about, you know, when did you, how did you get on this path of, of not just becoming a conservation biologist, but also focusing on IIs? Yeah, so I've always been kind of interested in animals and animal conservation. Um, and I started my undergrad at University of Vermont in wildlife biology and wildlife conservation. Um, but after I finished there, I I realized I wanted to focus on primates specifically. I, I really enjoyed that particular avenue. And, and I got in contact with... Uh, Dr. Linda Taylor out of the University of Miami. And she was absolutely wonderful in helping, you know, direct me in, in how to get to where I want to go and what I need to do. Um, you know, she recommended that I uh, go on a study abroad program in Madagascar through Stony Brook and, uh, and suggested uh, the master's program that I did at uh, San Diego State University. Um, and then I went on and did a PhD at Ohio State because I just really was enjoying what I was doing and wanted to learn more about uh, the species. When were you at Stony? When did you do this study abroad at Stony Brook? 
2005, I believe. Oh my gosh. So we, I was at Stony Brook, right. And we have a mutual mutual friend. So I did my PhD at Stony Brook. And then I also did my postdoc, um, with, uh, on gray mouse lemurs. And and so I'm guessing that you got to do this study abroad with Dr. Patricia, Wright. She, I mean, she's officially the person in charge of it. Yeah. I think, uh, Ulrich Reichard was, I think that's what his last name was, uh, was in charge of the study abroad for that particular year. But yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you to have imagined that you wanted to work with primates and then sort of been guided to this opportunity and then to actually go, what was your experience like in Madagascar for the first time as an undergrad? It was very different. (laughs) Madagascar is it's amazing and and very shocking simultaneously because you know particularly coming from from the U.S. like we we feel like we understand the different social strata and like what poverty really is and stuff but when you get there it's like no 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 this is a whole different level and it's it's hard to have people kind of grasp that and understand that but then. Um, when you actually get there, you get to go out in the field and and do what you want to do. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And, um, met some wonderful people there actually, uh, when I was doing the study abroad, um, Zach Ferris, who you also talked to, um, was doing his master's research. So I got to work a little bit with Zach and kind of get a more advanced feeling of, of what, what kind of research is being done out there and, and how that process works out. So it was, it was amazing. And Madagascar itself is a, an awesome experience, but also very eye-opening and, and it can be very sad at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, so I, I grew up mostly in South Florida after my family moved to this country. And then when I went to uh, Nepal, Quite some time ago, I was, it was that, I mean, I had been to Brazil. I'd seen the shanty towns in Brazil before, and then there's still a whole nother level than that. And, and I, I think that it would be such a valuable experience for people to really travel to these kinds of places to, because then there's some gratitude maybe (laughs) for, you know, the resources that we do have. And it's not that we don't have suffering in our own country and that children aren't hungry and people aren't homeless and, and that we have to really uplift everyone. But, um, it's a, it's a whole different level of, of poverty. And, and yet, you know, and I have not been to Madagascar, but from everything I, and I've met a few Malagasy, I think that's the, is that the right way to, to say Malagasy, that? yeah. Malagasy people. And they are lovely and kind and joyful. And, and so what was, how did that, aside from sort of recognizing the, the differences in resource availability for people, you know, how, how are you impacted by the cultural experience of meeting and interacting with, um, other, other culture, uh, another culture. I mean, that's a difficult question to answer. (laughs) Um, I feel like it's something that I've had a a little bit more experience with than, than most people might've at the, even at that point. Um, I I mean, I'd been fortunate enough to to do a a little bit of traveling beforehand and and I've been to, I'd actually been to Madagascar once before that for, it was only for a week, but 
So it wasn't completely as jarring at that moment, but the first time it was very jarring. Uh, so, but it, it, it's, it's very enlightening and, and it gives you a moment of a moment to kind of ref, of reflection to, to think about, you know, what, what, what commonalities there are and what, what differences there are and, and how, how those things kind of drive, um, drive people's perspective on the world. If that makes sense. It does. It does. And, and, you know, and you have continued, you know, now, do you still work in Madagascar? Yeah. Um, I, so for the, for my PhD research, uh, I wanted to, all right, so I'll back up a little bit more. So for my master's, I went back to Ron Mifon, um, but masters being what they are, I didn't have a ton of research money and I didn't have a ton of time. So, um, I wanted to work with II, but I mostly, I did, uh, project looking at the traces they left behind to see if there was any way to kind of understand how they're using their environment or where they're moving in their environment based on the traces that they leave to be more clear about what that means. I was uh, going to follow up with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I are notorious for gnawing into wood and extracting larvae. Um, and so they leave this very specific hole in wood that no other animal makes. So you can look around for that and that's their trace and you can very clearly be like, all right, well, then I, I was here because nothing else is going to make that. Right. OK, that's interesting. So, well, and, and let's back up even a step further and help sure. folks understand what are IIs. I mean, because there's lots of different. So there, there there's lots of different lemurs and how are lemurs different from other like new world, old world primates? And then where do IIs fit into the family of lemurs? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, the more I study them, the more I think my opinion is going to differ from some others. So the, the general idea is that IIs are lemurs, um, and very primitive type of lemurs. They, they're very distantly, uh, they haven't changed much evolutionarily speaking, uh, or genetically speaking, at least I, I think is the best way to put it, but they are they're They are lemurs. My opinion is I get to study them more and learn a little bit more about them. It's it's generous to call them lemurs. <laughs> Primates, for sure. They're related to lemurs, but they're so different from the other lemurs. It's it's kind of crazy. I mean, they they have a whole bunch of morphologies that are just completely different from anything you see in lemurs or in primates, really. They have continuously growing incisors, which... Uh, for a long time, I mean, th that's a trait of rodents. Um, and for a long time, they were not listed as primates in large part because of that feature. Um, they have elongated fingers uh, with very specialized musculature. Like all the muscles in the third digit are basically gone. It's basically skin, bone, and, uh, and some tendons. And it has a ball and socket joint at the base of the metacarpophalangeal joint at the, at where the hand meets the finger <laughs> ball and socket joint at that knuckle. And that allows the finger to rotate almost 360 degrees. <laughs> okay. So I'm seeing like, if we were as humans, if we had that, we could do some new, neat tricks with that middle finger on a ball and socket joint. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, okay. So, 
So they have these inside. So we'll talk more about some of their specific, um, the, the, what that finger can do because it's quite special. Um, yep. aside from its, you know, sort of physical s- structure, anatomical kind of composition. But you mentioned that they have these, these big and big front teeth. They're incisors that grow like a, a rodent, like even a beaver, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so they gnaw on wood. And so this is that that sort of forensic evidence that a um, an I.I. has been there. And and what made them ultimately get accepted as primates? Uh, Well, they still possess the like basic features of a primate. They have um, a post orbital bar. Um, They have. uh, What does that mean? A post orbital. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a piece of bone just to the side of the eye. Okay. And that's distinctive. The side of your eye, you could feel bone right along the side there. That's a post-orbital bar. Oh, okay. And that's common to primates. Yes. Oh, fascinating. Something that some other animals or some other mammals also have. So it's not specific to primates, but in conjunction with the other features of primates that makes up and they have to have those features to be a primate. And II does have that. Okay. Um, So nails instead of claws, eyes have some secondarily evolved claws, but (laughs) we'll we'll look past that one for now. Right. Um, So, so fingernails are another sort of feature, um, that, that sets things apart as, as primates. Right. And and for the listeners, I'm still sitting here rubbing my eyes, trying to feel that (laughs) extra bone. I'm fat and I'm rubbing my fingernails like, oh, I'm a primate. So we humans are primates, um, but we're really different from I eyes. Okay. So, so what did you discover in your masters in terms of how they move in the environment based on where you could find these traces of them? Well, so for my master, I, I hesitate because I feel like some of the things that I found in my master's, I might not agree with now. <laughs> well, that, okay. Well, that's okay. So you could give us the gist and, and it led to more questions, obviously. Yeah. For my master's, it kind of, it, at first it appeared like IIs were kind of focusing their effort, their feeding efforts around a specific type of fruiting tree um, called a canarium or the vernacular is rami. Um, and this is one of the other main resources that they eat. They'll go grab fruit out of this tree and then gnaw into it and remove the endosperm, remove the like fleshy part in the middle um, and then just drop the seed underneath them. So those are the like two main resources are these, these invertebrates and this seed. And it kind of seemed like they might've been focusing a lot more efforts on where those fruiting trees were. Um, but as I, again, as I actually like get to follow them and study, study them more closely, it, it it seems less like that is what they're focused on and more like they're just completely exploratory and they're looking for, for larvae wherever they can get it. And if they run across a rammy tree while they're at it, all the better. <laughs> right. Well, why pass up a little snack to tide exactly. you over at, while you're looking for a juicy little um, insect? So what kinds of invertebrates do they eat? We think it's beetle larvae. Um, Eleanor Sterling did her research on Nosy Mangabe, which is an island off the coast of Madagascar. Um, and she found that most of them were some type of beetle larvae. Uh, I didn't extract any of them, mostly because I was like, I don't know if I should be taking resources away from 
in the mall. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, from what we could see, it looks like the same kind of thing. Just this really large larvae that they pull out of the, out of any woody resource. Okay. Uh, some sort of wood boring larvae. Okay. Now they have some other, like people may not realize, like to me, they remind me, they look a little like there was a movie, like the gremlins. And, and I, I say that because they have kind of big eyes and mm-hmm. they have big ears and, um, more gizmo though, right? Oh, gizmo. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Gizmo. You're right. And so what's a big clue about, um, you know, when they're active is their eye size, right? So they're, yeah, they're nocturnal. Yes. They, so they are nocturnal. They still have a uh, tapetum lucidum, which is that reflective surface behind the eye. Like if you see dogs or cats at night and you get the reflection, that's the tapetum lucidum. Um, so eyes and all lemurs actually still have that. And that's really, that's the best way to find them. If, it, if you hit that eye shine that, they're basically like a large cat. Their fur is mostly black, but it's kind of broken up with little gray undercoat, a little gray undercoat and the longer furs kind of stick out from that. So when you look up in the trees at night, you're looking at, you know, dark sky, black canopy or a black animal that's kind of broken up with gray, gray fur. So it, it blends really well. And if you don't hit the eye shine, it's almost impossible to find them. <laughs> Yes. And I, you know, and it's interesting. I have an I.I. story. Um, So I did work on um, personality in mouse lemurs. And that work has continued at Duke Lemur Center on Shafaka lemurs and ringtail lemurs. And I wanted to test the I.I.s. Um, And in order to do this, you know, I had to present them with uh, and maybe you can help me understand their behavior because no, I was just like, I'll come to the punchline. I'm terrified of being in a room with an I.I. Not because they did anything dangerous. And and this is goes to how maybe some people view them because of the way that they look. Um, but it also has to do with a little bit of the way that they, they acted. So I had to present, you know, objects that they were familiar with and things that they weren't familiar with. But I.I.s are really strong. They can break stuff. So, um, and, and I think they break it with their teeth. Am I, am I wrong there? They can. Yeah. My understand. So the, I visited Duke Lemur center once. And, uh, when we were there, we noticed all the metal plates on the walls and they're like, Oh yeah, that's because they, uh, tap on the wall on the cement cinder blocks and hear the hollow spots and just decide to gnaw through it. Um, Exactly. So yes. you can not incredible bite force. <laughs> That's right. And, 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 but they, they never, they were never threatening. It's just that, um, when I presented them things that they were familiar with, they were often things that they used to get treats in. Mm-hmm. And when an I thinks that it's going to get a treat <laughs> and then it discovers that it's actually empty, it apparently wants to let the human in the room know of their grave error and they did this by coming straight up to your face and it because it's dark when they're in their enclosures right when they're Mm -hmm. active uh, they're on a a different time schedule uh so they put them at least at Duke Lemur Center at at night during the day and at day during the night so that they're active during the our daytime and (laughs) and so there I am locked in a room with three eye eyes 
And, and so do, do, they, they make fun of me to this day. And this, I, I just like walks up to me and, and before I know it, it's in my face. So their, their personal boundary lines are blurred uh, <laughs> a little bit. And, yeah. it, and it put that long finger <laughs> pointing it at me. <laughs> Like, where is the food that should be in this cereal box? Um, <laughs> and so I, uh, and they're large. They are, they're not tiny, like a mouse lemur. The, I think a lot of it is fur though. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think they're giant puff balls. You know, they look big, but mostly fur. <laughs> I know. And they have a big giant puff ball tail it's long yep. right but yeah. so okay so things appear larger in the dark <laughs> maybe <laughs> than they really are and i just i couldn't i couldn't cope and so i forced an undergrad to do the research <laughs> forced is the wrong word i invited the undergrad if anybody wanted to you, do it you gave them the opportunity i right? did i gave them the opportunity i didn't want to be selfish Absolutely. i didn't want to be selfish <laughs> and so um, it is still a source of, of enjoyment uh, to poke fun at me for like, mm -mm, nope, that's OK. I won't. I don't need to. I don't. Mm -mm, you go ahead. <laughs> um, but but this brings us to some uh, a bit of the social perception that even uh, that people have because they look different. They're dark. And, and there's some some sort of folklore or mythology surrounding IIs. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I love it. I mean, it it's it's definitely changing. And what I've what I've learned is that people don't necessarily like to talk about their own personal taboos or fadis that they have, which, you know, fair enough. I don't necessarily like to talk about the things that I don't like to talk about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, but uh it, it varies depending on the region you're in. The the studies that I've read, they say it, it can range between, you know, a simple, like if you see one, someone, you know, is going to die to, if it points, it's, I was going to say the one pointing its finger at you, people would take that very bad sign, you know, <laughs> middle finger at you, you're supposed to die immediately. According <laughs> to individuals, uh, there are some where, you know, there apparently was a group where Someone saw an eye and they felt the best move was to burn down the village and relocate. And then, uh, of course, for you know, for Halloween, we have the uh, some groups believe that ayahs will sneak into the house at night, poke a hole in your throat, and drink your blood. So, wow, there's <laughs> a pretty wide range of, of feelings on, on I, I can do to you. Um, none of none of which have any sort of scientific bearing. But no, I mean I. I am still, I stood tall while it, well, I might be, I didn't stand so tall when it poked its middle finger in my face. <laughs> I sort of was you dodged like, a bullet there. That's <laughs> according. Yeah. I mean, but that, those are pretty serious um, beliefs to hold. And, and how has that contributed to the status of, and, and, and like, I don't know what the current status is of the I.I. in the wild and how how this plays into efforts to protect them. Uh, so the current official status is that they're endangered. It's debatable how accurate that really is. We have no good clue as to what their population size is. 
I mean, really a lot of what we understand about their distribution comes from people being like, well, this village had a dead II hanging outside of it. So there must be IIs. And they, they do, that's, you know, the way to, to prevent any of the bad things from happening to you, to you, you, you kill the II that you see. I mean, the, the way I've had it explained to me from people in Madagascar is that they don't necessarily go out looking to hurt the II and they don't want to see it. If it's something that you don't like, you don't want to encounter it. Um, it's, it's just a, you know, unfortunate happenstance when they do counter it, that they have to have to carry out what they feel like they need to do. But we, we have a very gaping hole in our knowledge as to what the population size and density looks like. I mean, it, I think it largely depends on the, the area that they occupy, uh, their, their behaviors seem to be pretty adaptable to the to the forests that they're in. So for instance, uh, I mentioned Eleanor Sterling, her research was on Nosy Manga Bay, which is about a 500 hectare Island. And she had, I think seven individuals that she was studying on this Island. Um, and she found like females were 20 to 40 hectare home ranges. I'm not very good at translating that into acres. So one hectare is about 2.2 acres. So okay. 20 hectares is going to be, you know, maybe like 45, 47 acres, okay. which still and might not, you know, translate for folks on, on how big or small that is, but you know. Hopefully it helps a little. <laughs> <laughs> and then males were like one to 200 hectares, somewhere around there. In Kinjavatu, uh, which is one of the field sites that the MBP were, sorry, MBP is Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership. MBP and OHDZA have a collaboration. Dr. Lewis is um, the head of the genetics department here and head of MBP, the director and founder of MBP, I should say. Um, their main field site is in Kinjavatu, which is a, a disturbed forest um, that they're trying to regenerate. And uh, II is there, the female home range was closer to 90 hectares, I believe. Um, and the males were, I think, I want to say like closer to 400 maybe. And then in Tortor Futsi, which is where I did my research and is another field site of MVPs, um, the female that I studied, her home range was close to 800 hectares. And the male home range, which we pieced together from several years of data, he was covering over 3,000 hectares. So that implies they're not just on top of each other. No. Yeah. Right. They shouldn't, but at least in, so Tortor Footsie is a continuous forest. It, it's relatively speaking undisturbed. Uh, and there's still disturbance that happens, but it's a good chunk of forest as far as you can see um, that, that is still intact. And uh, in, I, more than likely that's where II is kind of evolved. And in that setting, they seem to be dispersing pretty far and IIs are, are solitary and, and don't, we believe they don't really have much in the way of overlap. Um, at least females seem to have very strict home ranges that they don't share with other females. So if you have, you know, 800 hectares for one female, that's, that's a huge chunk of space. Um, so the density may be a lot lower in a continuous forest and then maybe, you know, where the, when the forests start to be a little more disturbed and then a little more isolated patches, they might have a little bit higher density because they, they have to. Right. Now, cool thing, sorry. No, no, go <laughs> ahead. But the cool the thing, interesting thing is that we've actually, and we've actually seen that 
they don't really care so much about like the forest uh, limits. We, we've actually seen IIs that'll walk across corn uh, rice fields and just go on this huge walkabout to another forest that's really far away. It makes it even more difficult to, to keep up with them because, you know, it, they can travel pretty far, like well, well away from your research site. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they present you quite a few challenges. They're nocturnal. They blend in with the environment. They have really large home ranges. They're fairly, mostly solitary as much as you can tell, which means um, they're not going to be super noisy. Do they, do they make noise? Do they call? Do they have uh, lots of different vocalizations? Infrequently. They do have a handful of different vocalizations. Um, I only heard a I think maybe at best two while I was out there. Um, I'm not going to do them for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. One, one of them is a, a sneezing call, which basically just sounds like they're sneezing. And the, the other one was kind of this hiccup almost. It was like, okay. I'll try to get a recording. It was a hiccup. Uh, and the, that's kind of they... their main, I think, vocalization between the mother and the infant was, was that contact call. Okay. What other than the potential threats by humans, what other um, animals uh, actually eat IIs? Do any animals eat IIs? Um, so in Madagascar, the main predator of lemurs is the fusa, um, which is maybe best described as a type of mongoose, although it's not technically a mongoose. It's its own, it's its own type of animal, um, like most of the mammals on Madagascar. Uh, so that that's this, uh, the FUSA is the main predator of most of the lemurs. We did actually, uh, our guides actually saw a FUSA chase one of our infant IIs around a tree. It, it got away, thank goodness. But we also think that at one point we have, we found a dead II that we think might've been killed by a FUSA based on, um, based on the markings left in the body. Uh, other than that, you're looking at maybe domestic dogs if they come to the ground and, and the dog gets them or something like that. But it's mostly, mostly humans. Um, if you're talking about hunting and then if you're talking about biggest threats, it's mostly deforestation. Right. What do you, okay. So what do you want people to know about IIs so we can look past the way that they look? I mean, when you, when you, you know, when you look at them, they're fascinating. They look so different. Um, they just seem like a, compilation of different animals like put together into another animal yeah. <laughs> is what I feel like. And so, so what would you love for people to know that's so special about IIs and why you keep studying them? Because we don't tend to study things we don't, you know, find interesting or passionate about. So what, what would you like people to know about them? I mean, well, first of all, they're not evil. <laughs> I think they're actually adorable in that kind of like, oh, it's so weird. It's adorable kind of way. <laughs> they're absolutely fascinating in terms of they, they seem to break a lot of general rules that we have for animals. Um, for instance, uh, in primates, we we have this rule um, that we have a rule that basically says a primate shouldn't be able to survive on insects alone if it's over 500 grams. It's just energetically not efficient to do that. But the II is two and a half kilos and like 80% of its diet is insects. So there's something weird going on with that. They, they've, they've just got such a 
so much peculiarity going on. It's a, it's a fascinating window into evolution and, and why it works the way it works. Like, why would something evolve this way? It's so crazy. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is. And I mean, uh, and I'll make sure I put photos of the IIs on uh, the show notes. And what are you working on now? II specific or in general? Uh, in general. So, you know, because I want to make sure people can keep up with you and, and follow the work that you're doing, because it's so important, not just for IIs, but for conservation in general. And, and you know, I love being able to bring people like you and introduce them uh, to the audience. So, you know, yeah. So whatever you're working on that you feel like sharing. Right. So, um, I mean, obviously, COVID's put a large damper on our opportunities to go over to Madagascar and work. Um, we're we're really fortunate. We still have uh, we've been able to retain our teams in Madagascar and pay them through the pandemic, um, which uh, is, I think, a testament to to the zoo and and to uh, the de- our department, our program as well, being able to to generate the grant funds to do that. But. Um, so we're still collecting data on some of the IIs and, and trying to get a good idea of um, infant behaviors, infant development. Uh, we're trying desperately to figure out um, dispersal of infants. You know, how far do the infants go away from the mother, from their uh, natal home range, from the mother's home range uh, when they grow up, especially in, in disturbed forests where there may be less area for them to disperse out to. Um, that actually may be one of the bigger problems that they're having is, is there's just so little place for them to go are solitary. So they run into another II and, and that could be a fight that does not end so well for one of them. Um, so we're working on that. Uh, we have a, a very robust, I, I think is a good word for it, um, program where we're, we're working with a bunch of Malagasy graduate students, um, both masters and PhDs trying to, to help them through their uh, career, trying to get their scientific career going. Uh, so they, we have students working on lepilemur septum trianalis, which is the northern sportive lemur, um, which we think only has about 100 individuals left in the world. Um, we're doing that work up at Montagne des Francais, which is the north of Madagascar. Uh, we're working with some uh, students on uh, lemur cata surveys in the Southwest to, to get a good idea of how many of those there are left. Um, we're working with, uh, you know, greater bamboo lemurs. We're working with black and white rough lemurs, probably our biggest project, um, because we use the feces of black and white rough lemurs to help generate seedlings for our reforestation work and MVP's reforestation work is, uh, and I'm sure Ed will talk a little bit about this and you should ask him about this too. Uh, it's actually phenomenal. We've they started in 2010, um, and since then they've planted over four and a half million trees in Madagascar. Most of them in Kanjavatu. So the one of the coolest things is to see the Kanjavatu field station and see before and after pictures because the before pictures it was just this completely denuded hillside that no one wanted. And now it actually has a forest that lemurs are starting to come back into. We see mouse lemurs and fat-tailed dwarf lemurs moving back into that forest and starting to use it. So that's pretty exciting. Um, getting a good idea of how long it takes to generate these forests to the point where wildlife will reuse them. Uh, we're also doing that up north as well in Montagne des Francais, but we're using Ulemur coronatus 
seeds, fecal, fecal <laughs> seeds to help generate those forests. Right. And just for the listeners, the reason we would do that, right, is because if you are a seed eating or if you're a fruit eater or, um, or herbivore that eats plants and their seeds, you pass those seeds off into your feces and they drop wherever they drop and they might, reach, uh, you know, seedlings can survive this pass through your gut and your colon <laughs> and mm-hmm. out the other end. And but a lot of times, you know, the survival rate of seedlings can be pretty low, just sort of wherever they might land. So you guys, if I'm understanding, you go collect the feces and then do you extract the seeds from that and actually plant, you know, grow the seedlings before you then put them out? Yes. So I'll, I'll back up even a little further here. So Varicia, the black and white rough lemur and, and, and the U lemur coronatus, the crown lemur, um, will actually swallow the seed, the seeds and fruit whole. So oh, okay. they don't destroy the seed at all. And it's actually really funny to watch them eat that because they got very flexible cheeks. And so you get this kind of groundhog look where there's just big puffy cheeks as they try and gnaw on this food, but they swallow the seed whole. So it comes out intact. And then, yeah, we have, we've had a couple of different students look at germination rates of seeds um, that have passed through a digestive tract compared to seeds that are just removed from a fruit or seeds that are uh, that the fruit has decayed naturally and not every every species but there are certain species of trees that are co-evolved with the with lemurs and we see this in other primates and some bird species as well and stuff but on madagascar lemurs are the main seed dispersers and and some of the trees the germination germination rate will be close to like 80 percent successful if it's gone through the digestive tract and basically zero if it hasn't. So there are species of trees where it's, it's vital to have them go through that lemur species, which is another reason why you need that, you know, need to maintain the lemur population there because you're going to lose forest species as well. Um, so yeah, they'll go in, they'll, they'll follow some of the lemurs around, they'll collect fecal samples, they'll clean the seeds off, they'll plant them. We have nurseries at the different sites and they'll grow the seedlings until they can, uh, reach an, a, a maturity where they can plant and kind of survive. In Jibatu, they have about 20 nurseries right now. So they're, they work pretty, they, it's a big part of the project there. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, what a lot of people don't realize is post PhD, I mean, or even during your PhD, you're dealing with more um, fecal matter than you ever thought when you first set out. To, yes. well, and it, Cause it's so informative. It's not just that it, you know, I mean, I love that, that, that you guys have discovered that the journey for the seed for some of these plants requires a trip through the digestive system of certain lemur species, but you know, fecal matter itself, is so informative. You can get hormones from it, genetics, diet. You can sequence uh, the entire, you know, uh, diet of a animal um, by just having some of its poop. And so, <laughs> it was kind of an on-running joke. So my degrees in anthropology, which is a broad enough field, but um, there were archaeologists to a joke. Oh, you just follow monkeys around and collect their poop. And I was like, well, you get really excited when you find an outhouse. So you. Know, <laughs> 
<laughs> That's right. We like we, we we may not realize how informative it really is. It well, really is, yeah. Yeah, Tim, it, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I'm hoping that that by the end of this podcast um, episode, people will all be clamoring to know more about IIs and and develop a, an affection for them. And hopefully, you know, I know that a recent paper came out that attitudes in Madagascar are shifting a little bit, you know, or that it's more variable than has previously been thought. Yes. So hopefully that will continue to grow um, so that they're not persecuted. And I'm going to figure out how to wiggle my way to a field excursion with you guys uh, once COVID is over and can go to Madagascar because it's I've I've always wanted to go and and see lemurs in the wild and and hunting down a trace evidence of uh, II would be um, really just a dream come true. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's worth doing if you get the opportunity. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a it's been a good time. Listen, folks, we are not done. We have more II conversation on the way with my second guest. Before we get to that, I wanted to share another awesome podcast for you guys to check out. Science Night. Take a listen. Establishing connection to Science Night. Executing protocol. Relaunch. Science. What is it? Who does it? Why does it matter? The Science Night podcast answers these questions and showcases the latest in science news and discoveries. Join us every other Friday to meet the scientists behind the science and the stories behind the work. Learn more at Cynight.com. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T dot com. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. Find out more at riverpower.xyz. All right. Now that we have our II 101, I wanted to catch up with our second guest, Dr. Ed Lewis, to find out more about lemurs, IIs, and the conservation work he is spearheading. He's the Director of Conservation Genetics at the Omaha Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium and the General Director and Founder of the Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership. Hey everybody, I wanna welcome Dr. Ed Lewis to the show. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here, Jennifer. Well, you know, I had one of your colleagues, um, Tim, on earlier to sort of introduce us a little bit to IIs. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to feature them this Halloween episode is because they they have a bit of a bad reputation in in Madagascar and um, and maybe people here who see them uh, might find them to look a little odd or different, weird and and think they look scary. And so I wanted to give them a rebrand by talking about all of the amazing um, things about them. So you work with um, IIs and how long have you been doing that? Well, I've, I've worked in Madagascar for um, 21 years, and I guess the reputation can be, it's almost like Tim Burton designed this animal because, he's, you know, I got big teeth and big ears and uh, skeletal fingers. So um, it can be sort of understood why it's, it's got this bad reputation of a ghoul or a gremlin. 
but I've worked there for quite a while. We didn't, you know, it's hard to find them. They're, they're almost like ninjas in the forest. And so over the years, we've been to a lot of places. I think around over 250 places we've been to Madagascar and some of them three or four times. So um, we've been pretty much all over Madagascar. And so we've had an opportunity to accidentally run in them, into them. We actually collected the first, um, captured the first II way back in uh, 2002. Uh, that was the first time we had been working for three years and had never run into one. We've seen signs, but we finally found one. And ironically, it was captured in a place called Bura. And Bura it was a protected area. It's one of the oldest protected areas, but it's no longer recognized as a protected area because of the amount of tavi, uh, the slash and burn fires that have occurred. So. We have a, a sample and that information on a, a species, several species of lemurs that are no longer found at this place. It's just gone. It's completely gone. It's now mango trees. That's about it. Wow. That's, you know, that's really unfortunate. And, and we heard from, from Tim that some of the evidence you use to try to find IIs is, um, they leave traces behind, um, in the, in the trees from, from their chewing and trying to get at the larvae that they eat. And we didn't really get to, um, before we sort of talk about some of the places where they might be found, um, in Madagascar and where they might no longer be found, you know, you kind of mentioned Tim Burton might have put this in together because it's got all of these sort of it's like a mishmash of different animals kind of thrown into one animal um, but those features are, are really give us a sense of the specialness about them so why do they have so they're nocturnal right yep. um, but why do they have such big ears and what does this special finger do well Actually, they're, everything that about them has actually evolved over time. They're one of the, well, the, the, the oldest of all primate. I mean, if you look at the, the, the molecular data and the, the, the time stamp on them, this is around 40 million years ago, which is before all of the primates and way before all of lemurs. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been evolving for a long enough. And so the ears have actually modified. They have a, almost like a, like, a, like a soundboard that actually focuses the sound. And their, their middle finger, um, is more, it's like skeleton. It's not as fat as the other ones. And they, they'll tap it in, you know, really rapid motion. And they're, they're using this to sort of bounce off sound to, to find, um, rubs inside trees or bamboo. And so, and it's really unusual because it's the only, um, you know, we look at our finger, it's a hinge joint. It's the only primate or vertebrate that has this socket, ball and socket joint. Or their finger. In fact, the first time we immobilized that lemur, we looked at it. I thought, "Oh my goodness, we broke its finger!" But we finally realized it was a ball and socket joint. Um, so it was kind of disturbing at first. So you know, everything about them—they have this mus musculature that is sort of in the front of them that allows them to walk straight down. They walk underneath the trees. Um, they don't really do a lot of jumping, so it's they can actually, you know, we can lose them even though we have radio collars. We can lose them while they're, we're following them and we have to get them, you know, the radar receiver out and, oh, they're over, he's over here or she's over here. So um, they're pretty incredible. They're, they're, they're very skinny. They, you know, they look really bushy, but, you know, they, they really have almost like a greyhound body because they're just really skinny in the torso um, area. And they have a huge bushy tail that helps them to, with the rain and they curl up with it um, and sort of protects them a little bit. But. Yeah, they're, they're just an amazing animal. It's one of my, it's in my top, top five, easy. 
um, if not the, the, my number one. Um, we've been really fortunate to um, study them. Uh, we've had, we've known quite a few animals and across that we do our biodiversity work, but at Kinjavatu, Monte de Frances, and Torto Eclipse, uh, we have groups or individuals that we've been monitoring for a, quite a long time. Sinju, who's at Torto Eclipse, we actually call it Torto Eclipse, uh, Huasada uh, Bioreserve. We captured her in March of 2008. Um, and so, you know, we, that's like a record. I mean, having to change collars and maintain it. She's had five babies over those time. We've had Boozy from 2011. Um, and she's had five babies. And we have some animals up north. We, we sort of have, we've given names now. Like up north, we, we name them after uh, martial arts. So we have Jackie Chan and Sushu Chan up there. Um, and so and she's just had a baby. And so we haven't followed her that long, but it's much more harder there because you have these cars, limestone mountains, and she'll get on top of them. And it's, so it's hard, you can't follow her sometimes. You know, you sort right. of have to maintain. So they're a challenge. Um, I think that's what appeals to me. They're one of the hardest animals to monitor because if that radio collar goes dead, then you lose them. And you, it takes you sometimes years to find them again. Um, and you'll wow. find it the collars all torn up and barely hanging on. So, but we've, we've lost several of them, re recaptured them, usually by just following other II and then running into them. Now, so, so there's two questions that kind of come up there. One is about you, which is how did you, how did you end up working on lemurs and then really, um, focusing on IIs? When did you start? Uh, really, because you kind of hinted at that where you your first one was caught in 2000. It was about 20 years. But but how did you even end up really working on lemurs? Well, it, it was actually pretty much an accident. <laughs> I was going to um, the IPS meeting that was being held in Antana Reef, Madagascar in 1998. And I got asked by um, a colleague of mine, uh, Mark. Um, he's a veterinarian. And he was going to go over there and give a talk. At the Free Congress in Ronald Mapan. And um, <laughs> I ended up going last minute. I, 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 it was like an adventure of a lifetime. I actually went to the UK and then went straight through with seven bags. I had to take a taxi boost down to Ronald Mapan, um, which was a challenge back in the old days. There was the back road and a lot of mud. I had intended to go there with this invitation because I really. My background's reptiles and amphibians. Um, and so I was like, oh my God, this is great. They've got all these chameleons and they've got all these frogs and tortoises. So I thought I was going to be doing that. Um, but I instantly understood um, the, I was there till like late September of 98. And then I went back in January and started the field work and did lemur work. And I, the first person I worked with was Professor Jonah Rossin Zaki. And we, I put his radio collars on his study animals at Manumbu. Uh, special reserve and you know this has been a long-term relationship and and um and friendship with him over the years be, uh, because of that initial work in two in, in 1999 but yeah I, I was um it was it was never really intended um it just became that we we captured um you know Sinju and then we captured um uh Boozy and and then it sort of snowballed and we we started realizing that we were learning I mean uh, Tim um, his his PhD and doctorate work and his master's work, um, he discovered that you know it's not just dead wood, dead wood that they chew on. They do they go live, and a lot of times it's way up in the canopy. So 
you know, trying to use Deadwood as a, as a way of tracking them or finding them, not really that successful, you know, and, and it's, it's really not, it doesn't tell you that how many IIs are there. That's one of the biggest issues. We don't really know how many I are there because, you know, the territories are immense, just huge. I mean, we're 3,000 hectares with 6,000 acres. Um, and right. we'll move kilometers at night um, through the canopy. And these teams, it's a hard job. They have to work during the night. And, you know, that's their job. They don't really get daytime work. And so they're tracking them and tracking on and following them. They can move. And they do these walkabouts where they just go, we had one Sulu that moved over 30 kilometers in about four days and was on the ground walking. We had a GPS satellite collar on him. And you could see him walking on the levees of a rice field when you get really close to the, the data that we were downloading. So it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, I, I remember distinctly in the 2006 lemur status, IUCN red data um, list. There's, can't remember the individual, but I've talked to this through Dr. Russ Mittermeier. And we distinctly remember somebody saying they saw an I.I. in a Carafonsico walking down the road. And everybody went, no way, no, you're making it up, you're making it up. But we have proof, they do. They get on the ground, they walk across the road um, in Kinjavato all the time. Um, wow. I mean, so, I love that. I love that characterization of a walkabout. You know, they're sort of like the, feels like they're the forest gumps of primates. You know, they just like, okay, I'm going over here for kilometers on end. And and they live a long time. How How long do they live? And is that... And how does that compare to other lemur species? Well, it's amazing how long, I mean, Dr. Patricia Wright, she's done a lot of work with tropes, with uh, safakas, and, you know, they have 38, 40 years um, old. And so, you, you know, when you start looking at it, it's, 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 it shouldn't be surprising they live that long, but there's always things going against them now, especially with humans and bushmeat trade and hunting, but and habitat loss. But, you know, they, I think I, I, we had a female that she ended up getting cancer in Kinjavata. Her name was Bula Futsi. And uh, we finally, when we realized that she it was terminal, was really skinny, um, but she had hardly any hair on her. She was so old. But it's amazing that we we're, we're estimated she was probably 30 plus years. Um, she had had a baby about two years before and lost that baby. And then she had another one, lost that baby. And then she started getting these um, gross tumor grows. Um, up in her neck and, and a lot of a lot of in, uh, infections. And so we um, did a check on her, looked at her, removed her collar and, and put her back in the forest to, to let her pass away on her own in the forest that she grew up in. So they can live quite a long time. And even, like we said, we're following Stinju. She's now it's, you know, we're going into the 13th year, 14th year with her. Um, and I, she's going strong. She's got a baby right now named Blackbeard. We name after we name all those after her after pirates. Uh, we have the and like. So. But do you have a do you have a favorite individual that you've gotten to know over the years? I hate to say because I don't want to jinx it because I mean I've gotten really okay. close to a lot of them um, and they died. I mean, and the most amazing thing, which you know, we've had fifteen babies born within these females that we have, all male. Really, single female, and we don't really know understand that. And, you know, there's so many things we have to learn and. We've seen this before where we have a, you know, it's not like a 50-50 population. You know, we see this in the reintroduction program we did in Andasa Bay with the Diadema Zafaka and the Black and White Ruff that, you know, we have a lot more males born than females. And, you know, we don't know how this is happening. Is this a postmeiotic effect or change that's happening that we're not really understanding um, yet? But 
you know, there's so much to learn about these animals and it's so difficult. We've never seen a conception. Wow. I, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, from, from the way. Baby's pregnant, so. Yeah. Well, so, so there's a couple of things there. I mean, it's really interesting because I know with some other species and I don't know that it's true with, with lemurs and eye eyes in particular, sometimes the birth sex ratio will be skewed under certain environmental conditions. Like it's a signature of the environmental conditions that the mother is experiencing at that time. But, but so that's really curious that they were all males because yeah. um, listeners might not realize in general, there tends to be a 50, 50 um, sex ratio that, that then later becomes skewed, you know, as, a, as adults. Um, but certain things that are going on can affect that. The other, um, the other interesting thing is that, well, they're really hard to see, even just an individual, even if you're tracking it, it, it would seem almost impossible to catch a copulation. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you, you look at back of the history and the, and the, um, the people that have, have studied that a lot of, a lot of, you know, great work, Eleanor Sterling, you know, she was there and she saw it. And she said that, you know, the, the female will hang upside down her branch and the male would copulate, but there were so many animals packed in on this island that other males would try to pull the other male off the female. Um, we've never seen that. We've had, you know, we can track, you know, pretty much every month of the year we've had a conception. We can go, we just go back, you know, 65 to 70, 60, 165 to 675 days and get back and look when it was actually conceived. And sometimes it's during the holiday or during the holiday month or something like that. But, right. um, you know, and we don't, we can't watch this animal all the time. We don't go and we don't work every night. Um, that's an impossibility. We can't afford to support that many people to, to go follow them every night and working all through the night. That's, you know, and then you have nights where there's rains and you can't really look up in the rain to see an animal that's way up in the canopy. Where do they, where do they go at, during the day? Like, where do they sleep? Do they sleep just on a branch or do they, like, what do they do? They build nests. They actually use nests. A lot of, a lot of vines, um, lianas that they go into and, they're really smart. I mean, the you know, both Stinju and, and Boozy, which we've had a lot of relationship with and with a lot of babies, you know, she they build nests that are, you know, or use nests that are very far out in branches and really hidden. Um, and they change their nests often, except when they're having a baby. And they usually stay with that baby for about a month before she finally goes around. And that's how we tell. We usually get like, you know, she hasn't left her nest in two or three days. And then she'll, or she'll leave it really late at night. And, you know, they're pretty much like clockwork. They go to the nest at the same time when they're coming in in, in the morning and they leave at the same time at night, pretty much within a 30 minute uh, window. Mm -hmm. And so when they start staying later, you know, we notice things in the large mammaries and their mammaries are down in the England area, which just makes them another difference between other mammals that they're not in the, up in the chest region, the thorax region. Right. Um, so that's how we know that, oh, she's had a baby. I mean, like the first time I did, I got a call and I was on the road and they said, she hasn't left in this three days. I said, she's having a baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so, um, so they have better sleeping habits than most of us. <laughs> and they, they, they didn't need books or specialists to tell them you should go to bed at the same time every day and wake up around the same time. And so it's got to be, do you ever feel like it's nerve wracking when you know that they've had a baby and you, you, you know, and, and what do baby eye eyes look like relative to the adults? Like, are they hairless? Are they, do they come out like with fur all over? Well, we don't, we, you know, we have a, I have a sort of a hands off approach sometimes, especially when we have a baby because these are wild animals. 
And so, you know, a lot of times we, we monitor on the, on the ground and, and wait till light when she leaves the nest and eats and then comes back and nurse. Some days you can hear the baby crying. Usually it's like a month before we actually even go up there and we let Boozy or Ruby or Sinju leave or Susu Chen leave and then we go climb up. We went and that was probably the, the most, you know, hardest thing for me to watch these, these guys and people have, have worked for me for 20 years climb up these trees and be 30 meters up in a tree, you know, without harness, without, you know, with bare feet. But we um, brought some um, a, a specialists and arborists over to train them, uh, Rob or Dean, that came up and trained them to wear harness ropes and they would belay over to another tree and they're really good at it. And so now I feel a little bit better about climbing, but uh, they'll climb up and during the, we now change collars. Um, so we have, you know, they don't live, they don't last forever. So we have to go change collars. So we do it during the day. When they're sleeping and climb up and um, with, a lot of times they can reach in the nest and, and grab the tail and inject the tail and then sort of hold on while she's pulling and then finally you know pretty rapidly she'll go under the anesthetic and come sedated and then we put them in a backpack with the head out lower with a rope if it's a baby we we don't immobilize it we just make sure we, look, we do a gender reveal and every time it's male um so, <laughs> gender reveal party madagascar yeah. style <laughs> yeah, it's always blue bloom so um <laughs> we um we ended up um dropping him down and we got some great video on our facebook page about you know with you know lafitte you know it comes out feisty and ready to take on the world and but she would stay on the, the mom um it's safe and then after the, the mom's recovering, we get her back up and get her up in the nest with the baby and then a little recovery. And we okay. stay around because they, they're susceptible. You know, we want them to have proprioception and, and be able to defend themselves or flee. Right. They have to because they have, there's some carnivores that are dangerous. Right. The, the fossa, the fossa or fossa? Fossa. Fossa yeah. in particular. Well, I'll make sure in the show notes that we link to that video so folks can um, see this work in action. And, you know, you do genetics and I'm wondering, you know, how do you get a handle on the relationships in terms of the relatedness of individuals in a population and maybe who's the dad, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> like do certain, do certain females, you know, kind of like the same, same male? Um, and do they, do they mate with the same male over and over again? Or do they like to have um, a lot of different, you know, fathers uh, for their babies? Well, we, we've done some broad strokes. I um, work with George Perry from Penn State and um, Steg Johnson and his student, uh, Megan Aliwar. We've done a lot of genomic type data and looked at that and we found biodiversity is very unique. In fact, the, the, the II up north is not a different species or subspecies, but it's got a tremendous amount of unique genetic diversity that's found only up there. And none of those animals are represented in zoos anywhere. So but when we've just started looking at uh, microsatellites and looking at pedigrees and look at the individuals, getting samples, and, you know, it's hard to use fecals because you can't find them usually because they, they poop and it's at night and everything looks brown on the ground. So <laughs> it's really difficult to get that. So, and they also have some inhibitors for um, polymerase chain reaction with it. So it's really difficult. Um, but we have just started to, and we've got some surprising results that we're going to publish, but you know, you know who's related to who. You know, we thought that this was the the, the father was was Jera, and it actually he's the um, this brother looks like a Boozy, and so we've gotten some surprises along the way. But we're just starting to get that done. We 
you know, this the pandemic has um, slowed things down a lot as far as the genetics goes. And so we're just starting to get rebooted on that. And that's a high priority is to get all these um, adults and then babies and look at it at the genetic diversities within a population uh, versus across the population. So we should have some information coming out soon on that. But it, I, you know, it's it's amazing everything we thought we haven't been right on. So <laughs> I can say that. So right. Well, and, and you know, people don't realize how often being a scientist is humbling. I know when I, um, you know, not only because sometimes what you think you know is going on and, and it turns out you don't, but sometimes the animals outsmart you in various ways and, you know, make you realize like, oh, they're kind of more clever than I am. Okay. I have to work harder at, at figuring this out. Before we talk about some of your work um, at the Madagascar, uh, founding the Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership and the important work that's going on there, I want to talk a little bit about the beliefs and attitudes that people have about IIs. You know, Tim kind of uh, introduced us a little bit to some of the ideas that people in Madagascar have about IIs and seeing one and what that means. And how uh, do we know kind of where those beliefs originated from, like sort of why that's part of their culture and how prevalent is it still now in 2021 and is it changing at all? Well, I, I, you know, a lot of the stories, I mean, there's some great stories about a lot of lemurs. I mean, the story about the the injury and the babakuta and the black and white rough lemur, the varicia, you know, badajatsi, uh, and, you know, there is always that the, the injury is crying because it lost its tail. And the black and white rough lemur's got a really long tail, so it's laughing, you know, its calls are wah, wah, wah. So it's laughing at the, the black, at the injury. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there's some stories. I haven't really read anything or, you know, things are usually passed verbally. They're not really written down in Madagascar that much. Um, so, you, you know, that would be interesting thing. And I know there's, there's been a couple papers this past year about, you know, II and does, I've seen a lot of really, um, vigorous debates during meetings about this, about whether it's, 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 it's considered a fadi or a taboo. And it, and, and I don't think it was ever an agreement on, on the truth. I know that there's change, um, you know, in our community. Uh, they know about the II and they actually understand that it, it's actually a big draw for tourism because otherwise you don't really see it and it's not in a cage and you have a chance to see a, pay, uh, a baby. Um, often because we have so many females now that are that are cycling um, through with offspring. So I, I, I know there's change. Um, a lot of times we get really lucky and we'll have, you know, we bring the animal down, we're changing the collar and, and we have kids that we get, you know, if there's a school kid or something like that close, we let them see the animal close. We've had so many events. Uh, Conservation Fusion and, and Susie, she uh, built costumes and one of them is an I.I. And the, and it's always the student that's done the wet, the best in that class or that school gets to wear during some of the parades or festivals that she holds. You know, there's ways to changing attitude and monetary um, value is a, in a really easy way to change people's ideas. And so, um, but it's hard, you know, that's one of the hardest, that's the biggest dilemma in Madagascar because there's so much biodiversity and there's so many places you can't have, you know, these big, you know, national parks and expect that these little ones are going to bring. But, you know, there's some exceptional stories like Anja that, you know, that's not that big of a, a facility or a place, but they have a great tourism um, and income because of how they've handled it. Uh, but that's one of the biggest things about getting, you know, um, this idea about the II being a boogeyman 
it's such a large range. I don't think people see it that often. They'll see sign of it, but they don't really see it that often. But of course, they're in the field and often during the day, they're not really going out at night that much. A lot of people aren't. So the majority of the population, they're inside. Right. So, well, and it seems like one of the important things you're doing is helping to train Malagasy graduate students that will go on to, you know, I think one of the best ways to start changing attitudes and changing ways is when people from their from their own culture are actually the messengers. Right. And so so how many um, Malagasy uh, grad students and 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 scientists uh, have come through working with you? The last I heard that we that over 60 have graduated with their doctorate or their master's. We usually have in normal times, probably like 20 students that are either in the field or finishing up their dissertation and writing. Um, we really worked hard um, over the last five years and, and Tim, uh, Tim Sezak and, and Cynthia Frazier and, and Sharon Bailey and my whole staff, you know, I can just go on and on have really been pushing hard to help drive these students and, and push them for publishing. And that was one of the biggest changes I think recently had was that the university requires that a student getting their, their doctorate have to have one published paper, first author, and one in that's submitted before they can defend. And that's really given, me, given them the incentive to, to publish. And so we've worked really hard about making sure they have, when they're collecting the data, they already have a hypothesis that they're going to try to test, um, which you would think would be an easy way to do it, but it's it's hard. And sometimes you can't collect the data you expected to collect yes. in some, some circumstances. So, you know, they, um, this is my staff here and over there, they they do a tremendous job of, of working with the students and trying to get them to be the next, to be the next leader, to be the next professor Jonah. And so that's, that's really, you know, we really invest hard on that. And that's, that's, you know, I guess one of the best things about our program. Right. And that's a great way to build trust and relationships with local communities is, is having representation of Malagasy people as conservationists, as leaders, as scientists. And you founded, and you've talked about this a little bit in terms of incredible biodiversity, because it's not just eye eyes that are there. There are many, many species of lemurs. There's lots of, of, um, you know, reptiles and an incredible diversity that's found on, um, in Madagascar, and you founded the Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what its goal is and how people can get involved and support the work that you're doing? Well, the Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership, was, it got founded. It was all, all the paperwork and, and, and the laws and the drafting. Um, it actually got, it was accepted in, in 2010. And so I had already been working for about 10 years there. And I had a lot of staff members and other people that are working for a long time that are still working with me. I was, you know, I can't do this forever. And I wanted to be able to leave something besides, okay, well, I'm done. Good luck. Find another job. So I really wanted them to have something and own something. So we created the Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership, you know, and so we have, we have four sites that are going to have been picked farther from each other. So we have um, Lava Vula, which is in the far south, west, near Tampulu, which is spiny forest, and we do lemur cat and, and Propithecus borrowi, borrowi sapaca, ring-tailed lemur. 
And then we have um, Tordo Putsi, which, you know, it's got greater bamboo. It's got 14 lemur species in the area, including I, I and Black and White Rub that we work with. Uh, Kinjabat has nine species of lemur. And then we work way up north with the Monte de Frances, which is the northern sportive lemur, um, which is probably the most critically, if not, I said probably, it is the criti- most critically endangered lemur. I think the last count we had 84, but this whole area, this last place has been, is being cut down for charcoal. And so, you know, we do a lot of work with Ui um, Foray and the Gendarme and the, the local VOEs and Saj, who's the manager of authority, trying to get people to stop cutting this forest down because once it's gone, this species is going to go. Right. Um, it cannot be kept in captivity. There's not a single, there's 26 sported lemur species and none of them are in captivity. They, they just, they, they're, the gut floor, the hind gut floor changes so rapidly. The minute you take them out of captivity, out of the wild into captivity, you can't duplicate that at this point. And so they, they die a, a horrible death. We have to protect their habitat. And so that's the amazing thing about almost Hollis Hindu Dwarfies doing a frame is they're supporting this project over there. They don't have the animal in captivity. They're not going to. And, but they do what they can. And, you know, the work that we're doing um, with our partners there is, is vital. And that leads into, I never thought that I would be doing this, but we're doing reforestation at such a high level. And, you know, Kinjabatu, um, we had big planning today for World Lemur Day. Um, it was 12,000. We did 4,200 commercial crop trees yesterday for the community. And we did, um, but we, we planted around 4.5 million at all the four sites. The majority of Kinjabatu, we planted our 4 million tree uh, um, that was April 30th, which is Arbor Day, um, and that was the four million tree. But we have goals to really up this ante. We really want to start putting trees at at a ridiculous level. Even though I know that we're planting between 60 and 70 thousand trees a month, I, that's not ridiculous enough for me. I really want to see trees going in at such a high rate that it just it doesn't matter anymore. And you know we've been doing this since 2010 in Kinjavata, so we have trees that are recruiting for themselves. They're putting seeds in the ground and babies are coming up and this whole idea of the mother tree and you know building little community forests is is going to be helpful but you know it's all about um the community if we don't involve them and engage with them none of this work's going to be successful so we do a lot of work with the communities and a lot of it is we can't plant these trees by ourselves so we engage with the the community all the time that's wonderful and you know so it strikes me as so fascinating, right? Your journey from an invitation to a conference, and here you are spearheading a, a massive reforestation project, um, not just to save lemurs, but to save communities and the biodiversity that's found on Madagascar. And um, I'm 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 in awe of everything that you accomplish. And the Henry Dorley Zoo is one place where one can go see IIs. It's uh, not many places have IIs in captivity in the United nope. States. And um, how many lemur? How many IIs are there? Well, we have a male and female. It's a really nice exhibit. It's actually North America's largest um, Madagascar standalone exhibit. And um, they have IIs, we have Mongoz lemur, which are another really critically endangered lemur that um, its habitat is gone. And with the news coming out of Madagascar, it's, it's, it's really deflated. It's gotta be one of the worst jobs. I mean, I, I, I never, as far as morale and, you know, you always feel like you're going one step forward and five back. And the news coming out of Madagascar about um, Mena Bay and, and Karendi 
and the Carapontes, which are really famous places. You got Baobab Alley and you got Karindi with Lankanuka. Um, they're being burned down um, just to plant, you know, a couple, you know, two, you know, two years of corn in one year of peanut, and then do it again. And you can't replace forests. We find this out at, in Monte de Frances, and it's a much smaller area. Um, but you know, when you somebody comes in and cuts five trees that are 100 years old, and you're planting a hundred or a thousand that are little seedlings, it, it doesn't. The mass not there. Right. But I, think, but I think that's a problem. Our, our we have been balancing the budget for quite a while. We do. We did a lot of work protecting areas, or establishing protected areas in Madagascar and other places. But we don't do a good enough job fast enough to help the communities that are embedded in these these areas. That's right. There's a, there's a bit of a lag in, in how much effort and time, you know, so it's wonderful to hear that you're doing that. I think that if it's a social justice issue, too. Right. For many people, if you if you take away the way for them to have a livelihood, then there's not buy in for for protecting areas when there's no replacement for themselves. And, and this has come up a few times in the podcast. So what are some of the things that, that your partnership is doing with communities? How, how can communities be uplifted and still do conservation? Well, I, you gotta have, a, you have to have good partners for one. And, and that's not just, you know, international partners uh, like conservation fusion or rewild or, or Arbor Day Foundation, I can go on and on, um, MK Lemur Foundation. Uh, but you have to have local partners. And we have, you know, we, we make strong relations where we try to with, with the commune, with the mayor, uh, with the local UIFRI office, the SEREF and the DRED. So, and because these, we all have to work together and they have got information and that we don't have access to. And so it makes it a lot easier. We have a, a, a community-based program for education with Conservation Fusion, but we also have um, this Conservation Credit Program that when they're planting trees, they plant, um, you know, we'll plant like 7,000 trees that day. And we have like 20 women, and it's like two sites or four sites, and there's 20 women at each site and about 10 guys or maybe 20 guys that are doing the heavy lifting. But they didn't do a good job planting, so the women are really our backbone. It's like 70% of the people in this program, they have a lanyard. They have their ID with a barcode that they scan in for a computer app. And at the end of the day, if we planted 7,000 trees, they get 70 credits. And then we have a, and they can cash those credits in and we have a catalog. And um, I mean, one of the nicest or most incredible things that happened, if there's a silver lining of this, this um, pandemic is that when this was happening in early um, in March and I got, I left uh, Madagascar before the international ban happened on March 19th. We sort of realizing that this is going to hit Madagascar and they're going to close it down. We we actually enlisted Conservation um, Shoes and they did a fundraiser. We bought the material to make masks. And you know, one of the things that we realized is that the women that have been working with us in the credit program had cashed in their credits to buy these old Singer hand-driven sewing machines. So we worked with um, the representative from Conservation Fusion, Innocent, and. She got the design from my staff and Brittany Robinson, and they went over there and they made all these maps. And we they generated so much money that we made around 2,000 maps. So they made them, we paid them for it, and then we distributed. And then we made a, a whole routine about reforestation and monitoring. And then we actually sent enough maps to our other sites. Uh, but it's sort of neat going from reforestation, community earning credits, buying sewing machines. They're making the maps to protect themselves. So it was pretty cool. 
Yeah, that's well, you know, and it's beautiful. And I think also something that you touched on is that that many people may not realize that the work that we do and as researchers and scientists and conservationists, it's filled with grief, too. When we when we see the losses, we feel the losses, whether it's an individual that we've followed for years or a species that we've studied or a forest that we've spent time in that we know can't come back. Um, it's a really, it's, it's a hard road, but you know what? Like we keep running on it and walking on it and sometimes we crawl on it, but, <laughs> but you're doing such amazing work and how can people get involved? This is world lemur day on Friday and Halloween on Sunday. And, you know, I'm hoping people feel some love for IIs and in general for lemurs, um, as well as the communities that that need a way to move forward economically without destroying the habitats that they need ultimately and that the species that they live with need. So what can people do? How can they help? You know, it's really hard to be able to do something home at home that really affects Madagascar because they're especially been isolated for the past year and a half. Uh, but there are a lot of great organizations out there, including the Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership, that you can go ahead, you know, a little bit of money, anything helps. I mean, just like, you know, the donations that happened for the, the, the mass for Madagascar project, it was, you know, we were trying to raise $700, got 2000 and we made a lot of masks, you know, and that, that helped and it protected these communities. I would feel really remiss doing all this stuff to protect the animals and then the whole community gets lost. Um, so, but you can, you know, you can, there's a, there's a way to go through the Omaha Zoo Foundation. You can go ahead and donate and, and pull down the tab and go Madagascar uh, project and that money will go and, and we support our program. We're really trying to become, you know, the biggest goal after now, after so many years of doing this, you're right. I, I, I have people that have worked for me for 20 years. Um, we lost some people during the pandemic um, in Madagascar, some long-term um, from, the, from the immobilization teams that I've worked with, you know, ate, suffered, sweat, bled, uh, <laughs> you know, on field traps, and, and they passed away this past year. Uh, but you can, um, you know, support a lot of little things, and we're trying to get sustainable, self-sustainable. And that means we have to train our the people up running these programs in the country, and they are great. I mean, we went a year and a half, and we planted only 600,000 trees last year, which was a drop off, the first drop off we've had. But considering everything, that was an amazing thing. And we're back in the, we're going to get over, we're hopefully going to have our highest total this year. We'll be over 800,000 uh, for Kinjavatsa alone. And we're already breaking it, the records previous year from Monte de Frances and, and at Lava Vulu. And we just started the nursery at, at Florida Quincy that we're going to start doing mitigation. So, you know, reforestation, you know, a little bit of money goes here and there. And um, it really supports that. So okay. that's, that's a way to get involved. You know. All right. Uh, well, great. So what, what we're going to do is we're going to make sure we have all the links on the on the show notes for people to find um, Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership, be able to contribute and um, and the Facebook page with the videos of the IIs and and ways to um, see the great work that you're doing. I know you are busy because it is World Lemur Day today mm -hmm. that we're recording. So I want to um, you know be mindful of your time and, and thank you so much. Um, 
Ed Lewis, Dr. Ed Lewis, um, for taking time out of your day to, to speak with us. Thank you. Give me the opportunity. It's, it's fun talking. I don't ever get bored and I can talk for hours about Madagascar. It's a very special place. Well, then we were going to have to have you on again another time. We'll come back with a sequel on maybe some other species. <laughs> when you find out who the dads are. Who's the daddy? <laughs> Who's the daddy? That's what I want to know. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, everybody. That's the show. And, you know, the theme today is that there are things to admire in other species. And just because they look different doesn't mean they possess dark qualities. That goes for people too, my friends. And let's face it, to other species, I'm pretty sure we look awfully weird. Walking upright, being so weak, slow runners, unable to do much except talk a lot and break things like, you know, the planet. And yet they find a way to accept us, something we could learn a bit more about. There's a lot to check out in the show notes, so head over to my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean and see how you can follow the II Adventures and help do something for conservation by supporting the organizations working to save lemurs, their forests, and the communities of humans that share these spaces. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave a review so we can get the word out. There are even more amazing guests coming in the next few months, including a series dedicated to women in science, thanks to the American Geophysical Union's Sharing Science Grant. So stay tuned. In a few weeks, I'll be bringing you a report from the COP26 as I head off to Scotland to be part of this historic and trouble-filled conference. Till next week.